0: This is Colossians chapter 3, beginning at verse 5. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived. But now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these anger rage malice slander and filthy language from your lips do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in the knowledge in the image of its creator here there is no greek or jews circumcised or uncircumcised barbarian Scythian, slave or free but christ is all and is in all let me pray that god would apply his word to our hearts Our Father, we come asking that you would speak to us with the truth of your word. Lord, that your spirit would convict us of sin, that we would not be content to walk out of this room, to walk away from this message, the same people we were when we started. But that your spirit would renew within us the desire to fight against sin. Lord, I pray that we would see the glory of Jesus, his greatness and majesty, his power and might. Father, our hearts are easily distracted, and so we ask that you would turn our focus and attention to your truth, to your word. We come praying in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Don't tell me what to do. It's our natural reaction when someone offers what we think is unhelpful advice. Don't tell me what to do when someone offers an unsolicited correction. Now, sometimes this reaction is an appropriate response to an unjust or or hypocritical statement. But most of the time, we're just upset. Don't tell me what to do, like a toddler screaming at the top of his lungs, No! Or maybe our reaction runs even deeper, more to the core of our own beliefs. Don't tell me what to do, because any time you tell me what to do, you're trampling on my rights. Any claim of authority over me is wrong, you might think. You can't impose your beliefs on me because maybe you think that that ethics, that morality, is entirely relative. What works for you might not work for me. What works in one culture might not work in another. And so morality, you think, is always shifting. I mean, we're smart enough not to believe the nonsense of previous generations, you think. You look at the morality of your grandparents' generation and you're glad we've moved past that antiquated view of life. And yet, the problem with a view that says all morality is relative is that it makes your own statement itself relative. You would have to admit that anything you think is right or wrong now will likely be questioned maybe a generation from now or maybe next week. Your grandchildren's generation will think your views are foolish, which removes any possibility of making claims about right and wrong, about what's just or unjust, even in this present moment. Don't tell me what to do. I think it's even the reaction of the Christian heart when we read Paul's instructions. Our temptation to, to treat sin lightly to think, I don't think it's as big a deal as you're making it out to be. Don't tell me what to do. And yet Paul, in in turning the Colossians' attention to the reality of what Christ has done, then says you have to take this seriously. Look back at verse 5 in Colossians 3. Paul gives the command, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. In in verse 8, he repeats the command. But now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these. And so let's look first at the depth of our sin. Why is Paul so urgent in this command? It's because of, of how deep our sin goes. It, it, yes, includes our sinful actions. Verse 5 gives, gives us a list, a tragic list of sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed. The, these actions of our hearts, of our bodies, to turn even the good things of this world, even our desire for more into idolatry itself. Verse 8 warns us against slander, speaking wrongly about another, about filthy language coming from our mouths. Verse 9 tells us, do not lie, do not speak falsely to another. But, but you notice that Paul doesn't merely stop at actions. It's not as if he, he says, it, it's just what you do on the outside that matters because these lists get deeper than that. They, they look not merely at our sinful actions, but our sinful actions attitudes, the impurity, the lust, the evil desires. Greed, taking control of our hearts so that that the desire for more becomes an idol itself. Setting aside God and chasing after things in this world, our hearts are the problem. The actions of verse 8 are not merely actions, but they're very attitudes. Anger, rage, malice. The the leanings of our hearts the inclinations of our heart the, the pathways that we walk down our hearts are distorted the problem isn't our actions and our attitudes but it but it's even deeper it's even worse it's the it's the very pride that lurks at the core of who we are it's our tendency to exalt ourselves and look down on others that's what that's what paul is saying in verse verse 11 he describes the church that that those that are being renewed In in, in verse 11, he says, here in the church, here in the place where God is, is bringing about new creation, verse 11, here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. There is no place for the prejudices of the old nature. In Christ, there is no inferiority. Everyone has value and dignity. He, he draws the, the giant contrast that, that as a man who had grown up in a, in a Jewish community, a man who had heard the gospel even while he considered himself a Jew, that divided the world into Jews and everyone else, the, the Gentiles, the Greeks. It's not merely a, 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 an issue of language or even of ethnicity. It's a religious issue, and, and that's clear in the very next the very next pair that's contrasted for us. Circumcised or uncircumcised. Those that are following God's covenant and plan. Those who have committed themselves to obeying the Old Testament law and those that have not. And then he gets into words that, that, that might to us just be, be simple words, but, but, but betrayed an underlying pride and arrogance when used in the ancient world. Barbarian and Scythian. These are not set in contrast to each other. A barbarian is anyone who is not Greek. It's a, it's a, it's a word that, 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 that itself is meant to make fun of them. Their language is barbar like it, It's as if they're, they're babbling nonsense. That's where the word barbarian comes from. It's, it's just taking a, a nonsense syllable and repeating it. It, it. it is meant, even every time you describe them, to look down on them. And a, a Scythian... In the ancient world, it was the, the, the epitome of unrefinement and savagery. The, the worst of the barbarians, you might say, a Scythian. Somebody who you could identify not only by, by the way that they look ethnically, but by the very way that they carry themselves. As soon as they open their mouths and speak, you know they are not worthy of your attention. So that's the way in the ancient world that you would have divided the world. You would have divided it among those that are slaves and those that are free. But Paul is saying once the, once the gospel has taken hold then that pride that lurks in your heart needs to be rooted out. You have to deal with it. And so we might when we read this verse, when we, when we read and it said here in the church there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian or Scythian, slave or free. We might think that, that initially that, that we're just meant to have an ethnically blind attitude. We just treat everyone the, the same. We ignore any differences. But that's not what Paul is, is saying. He's saying, yes, those differences that you used to measure people by in your former life, those differences are differences that, that show nothing about the goodness or value of each person. Why? Because each person who's been renewed, verse 10 tells us, was made in the image of their creator. Made by God and so have dignity and worth. But these are things that you would be able to identify. Those that are slaves and those that are free, you would know people's status. You could tell a Scythian when they walk in the room, you could probably smell them before you even heard them speak. And yet Paul is saying those kinds of divisions have no place in the church. It's not that we ignore that people are different, it's that we recognize that those differences do not determine our dignity and value. And when we look at it in those contrasts, in, the, in these, these contrasts, in those terms, then we realize that yes, while, while you probably aren't going around calling someone a barbarian or a Scythian, you know that that attitude of superiority lurks in your own heart. You are tempted to look down on others, either for their place in the socioeconomic ladder or their ethnicity or, the, or who they are. But, but what Paul is saying, when they walk in, you recognize the image of God's creator. And more than that, Paul's argument here is not merely that individually, and this is true, but, but he's saying not merely that individually each person is made in the image of their creator, But the church as a whole is made in the image of God. The church itself is being renewed, and actually without these differences being on display in the church, then the church is missing something of great significance. Because it's only when Greek and Jew can worship together when the circumcised and uncircumcised can be worshiping the same God in the church, when the barbarian and Scythian is welcome, when slave and free are able to worship together, that, that the world is actually able to see the image of God in its glory and its fullness. Because in Christ there is no inferiority. And so the prejudices of our past have to be set aside. It's because the sin is so deep within us because it is a part of our very nature. It is part of the old self that we inherited from Adam. We are sinners at our core. That's what Paul says in verse 5. Put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Our attitudes and actions merely flow out of who we are. It's not that that when you fail or stumble, you you can offer that that half-hearted and meager apology that says, "But, but, but that's not who I am. No, your sins and failures are because that is exactly who you are. At your core... Because of the sin you inherited from Adam and Eve, you are a sinner. You have an old self that needs to be put off, but God is making you into someone new. And so the depth of sin then calls for a response. We've seen it in these strong commands that are given to us. Verse 5, put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Not just set aside, not just turn away from it, not just pretend like it's not a big deal. Put it to death. He says in verse 8, Rid yourselves of all such things as these. Get rid of it from your life. Root it out. Destroy it. Take off your old self, verse 9, and put on the new self. See, this calls for a radical reaction against sin. It's what the Puritans would have called the mortification of sin. That it must be put to death. That we must take sin seriously, and yet we tend to coddle our sin, to hold it dearly, to protect our sin. Yes, we, 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 we don't want others to hear about it, so we keep it hidden from view, but not so that it can be destroyed or killed, but so that we can enjoy it. Theologian J.I. Packer asks us to imagine the scene. He says, a man is sitting in his armchair, his favorite armchair, and on his lap is his big shaggy dog. He's stroking the dog. He drifts off to sleep. But he wakes a few minutes later and, and, and resumes stroking his pet. But now he realizes that it's not, in fact, his dog. It's a lion, a ferocious lion sitting in his lap. He says, but Packer is trying to get us to see that, that your sin, that which you held dear, that which you loved, that which you, you, you kept close to you, is actually trying to destroy you. You're not able to sit relaxed once you see the depth of your sin because you're in a fight for survival. John Owen, the the great Puritan preacher in, in England, he said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. See, this is a fight to the death. Sin will destroy you unless you destroy it. That's what Paul says, put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Rid yourselves of all such things. Take off your old self. And Paul, in, in verse 5, the, the list of sins here, it focuses especially, I mean, it's, it's a broad list because it includes any evil desire in your heart, any greed, longing for something more. But the, the first three sins in that list in verse 5 deal specifically with our sexual sin, sexual immorality, impurity, and lust. Because as embodied people, as people for whom sex was made to be a gift, enjoyed within the beauty of marriage, we have distorted even the gift God has given to us. So that in our hearts we chase after sexual pleasure. When we live, and and, and maybe your, your perspective on this is that, well, as long as it's not hurting anyone, except that we have to define who might be hurt. In this as long as it's between consenting adults you think anything would be fine and yet who has the right to consent and what gives you the right to harm another person because sexual immorality impurity and lust they destroy not only our our relationships but our but our very souls these evil desires greed turn into idolatry and yet we're content as 21st century people to find satisfaction sexually in images, in videos, rather than in a meaningful marriage relationship. We're comfortable with entertainment that would cause others to cringe if they knew you were watching it. And yet, but that's what everybody's talking about. I mean, it's the latest and greatest. I have to see it. And, and actually, I have about 6 to 14 hours later today that I could fill with a nonstop flood of entertainment. But the sins here are not only destructive to us, they're relationally destructive. That's what verse 8 is telling us. That anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language destroy our relationships with others. And you might not think these are, these are sins that, that, that lurk in your heart. Maybe you're not somebody who's known to, to blow up in anger or in malice. And yet we are tempted to distort the truth, as verse 9 warns against. To slander others, but even as we destroy relationships we end up destroying ourselves so we have to take sin seriously put it to death because otherwise sin will control us rachel miller remembers a question her ruf campus pastor regularly asked the group he would say are you struggling to be free or are you free to struggle all right, now, now initially we think, we stretch our heads and, and wait, is there a difference between those? Are you struggling to be free? Meaning, are you trying to, to live your life, to make yourself right with God and with others? Struggling to, to deal with sin and guilt in your own self? Or, have you been set free by the grace of God to struggle against sin? Because the reality is, all of us are in a struggle, dealing with the brokenness in our own hearts and lives. The question is, how are you dealing with it? Are you dealing with it in your own strength, trying to make yourself right with God, and so you're, you're struggling to be free of guilt, to be free of worry, to be free of anxiety, to be free of broken relationships, but you're doing it all in your own strength? Or are you free, free from sin, or free from the guilt of sin so that you can struggle against the reality of sin in your life? So your life will be a struggle. But once the grace of God takes hold of you, then you're set free. Freed from the struggle of making yourself right so that you can struggle against the right thing, against sin. Do you struggle against sin or do you delight in sin? And yet Paul doesn't just dump this burden on our shoulders without reminding us of the grace of God. I mean, look at verse 5. It says, Put to death, therefore... It's forcing us to look back at the previous verses. It's forcing us to recognize that, that, yes, Christ is the one who is seated at the right hand of God. And my life is hidden in Christ. I belong to him. My rightful place is in the kingdom of heaven with Christ. And so I can't live as if this world is ultimate for me, as if my old self is ultimate. And so the very, the very structure of the grammar reminds us of the grace of God put to death therefore, because of what Christ has already done for you. But even in verse 6, when we're warned of the coming wrath of God, it's a picture of God's grace. Because of these sins, because of your sexual immorality, because of your impurity, because of your lust, because of your evil desires, because of your greed, which is idolatry, because of these the wrath of God is coming. You may think, well, Kevin, you you just told me that, that wrath is a picture of God's grace. And, and you, might, you might be tempted to say, well, that can't be. Wrath is, is anger against me. And yet, wrath is the anger of God against your sin, against the injustice in this world. Because wrath is not, not a contradiction of love. Wrath is actually the expression of love. If someone you love and care about is about to be harmed, if injustice has been, has been done against one you love, then, then a righteous anger is the appropriate response. And that's God's response against our sin. God doesn't just shrug his shoulders and say, well, what do you expect? They're human after all. What do you expect? Boys will be boys. It's fine. What do you expect? That's all that they are. No, God responds in wrath. The wrath of God is coming. It's a warning. If you have not put your trust in Christ, this wrath is coming for you. God's judgment against sin is coming. And yet God's wrath, when you've put your trust in Christ, is proof of God's love. He is not ignoring sin. He is dealing with sin. God is a God of justice. But the whole structure of this section which we've read is the structure of transformation, You, in your old self, were tied to sin. We're bound to sin. We're living in sin. We're walking in sin. But in your new self, you have been renewed by God. That's the contrast that's set up for us. We we see it in verse 7. You used to walk in these ways, in the life you once lived. But now you must rid yourselves of all such things. This is who you were, but now this is who you are meant to be. You have been set free from sin by the grace of God in Christ. And so stop living as if sin is ultimate in your life. Set aside the idolatry and trust in the true God. That's the way you used to live, but this is how you should now live. Because verses 9 and 10 give us this contrast of an old self with its practices. The old self before Christ, rooted in sin, living out the the very natural outworking of our sinful nature was a sinful heart. It was sinful actions, but you have now a new self. You are being renewed. Look, look at verse 10. You are being renewed in knowledge in the image of the, your creator, the one who has given you this new self. It, it's a change in mind. It's a radical transformation. It's a gift that God gives to us. And you notice yet that, that, that even though God is the one who has done the work for us, he's telling us to get involved in this, this fight against sin. Put it to death. Take off your old self. Put on the new self. This is no longer who you are. That sinful nature, that those sinful desires, that's who you were. Yes, as Christians, we recognize that these desires are still in our hearts, but they don't control us anymore. You need to struggle against sin. You are now free to struggle against sin. God's grace is at work in you. Why? Because Christ is all. He is everything that you need. He has accomplished everything, and he's in every one of you. If you've put your trust in Christ, then verse 11 is a promise to you. Christ is all and is in all. You are united to Christ by faith. And so when we say put, death, put, put to death your sin, we recognize what Jesus did to put sin to death. I mean, the gospel story, which is reflected in the opening chapters of Colossians, is the, the true history of Jesus, the Son of God, willingly letting himself be killed, be put to death so that he could put sin to death. Because it was on the cross, in the, in the blood of Christ, that we find forgiveness for our sins. Jesus, the Son of God, willing to die for us. See, this is the hope of the gospel. And because we are new persons, we must live like new persons. That's the summary of this passage given by a commentator. Because you are no longer your old self, but you have taken off the old self. God has given you a new self. You are a new creation. Now live like someone new. Put sin to death. Christ put sin to death in his own death. You've been set free from the power of sin. You are now free to struggle against sin. You have the work of God in your life. You have the grace of God on display. Stephen and Janice found an unexploded bomb in their London basement. Now, because of the bombing, the the overwhelming bombing of London during World War II, this isn't as unusual as it might sound to us as American listeners. But Stephen and Janice, they don't want to disrupt their day. They don't want to bother their neighbors. So they don't call the police until the next day. I mean, they'd read stories of where bombs had been found in other neighborhoods and what an inconvenience it provided. that streets got shut down, people got evacuated, and it it was a big nuisance. And so they explained, Stephen and Janice explained to a newspaper reporter, we decided we were just going to sleep on it. Now, thankfully, the bomb was removed the next day without incident. But are you comfortable with the bomb in your own home? In your own life? The sin which lurks in the basement of your soul? Are you willing to just sleep on it? I'll deal with it tomorrow. The newspaper accounts of the unexploded bomb read like a morality tale. Not only because of the sense of danger, I mean, I think you probably thought I was about to blow their house up, but because Stephen's last name is Sin. So every time he's quoted in the story, the the writers use the formal language, they call him Mr. Sin. Mr. Sin believed the danger was minimal. Mr. Sin decided to sleep on it. Mr. Sin didn't want to wake the neighbors. Mr. Sin thought he could figure out how to deal with it tomorrow. Does sin rule your life? Or have you been set free? Set free from sin, set free to struggle against sin. Put sin to death. Rid yourselves of all these things because Christ, your Savior, gave his life for you. Christ has set you free from sin. Let me pray for us this morning that God would change our hearts. Father in heaven, I pray this morning for those that that listen without a knowledge of you as Savior. Perhaps they've come in with, with frustrations or disappointments. And so Lord, I pray that having heard your word, having seen and listened to the truth of what Jesus has done, that they would now turn from sin, confess their sins, and find hope and forgiveness in Jesus. Lord, for those who are believers and listen, even members of the church and yet yet have sin lurking in their lives, I pray that you would allow us to be honest about sin. Lord, that we wouldn't be complacent, that we wouldn't be content to be the same people we were last week, this next week but that we would actively, intentionally, willingly, by the power of your Spirit, put sin to death in our lives. Lord, use us in relationship to encourage and strengthen one another. Empower us by your Spirit. Remind us that we belong to Christ, that Christ himself is within us, that we are united with him. And so, Lord, give us the hope of the gospel, the encouragement in your word. Father in heaven, we come praying in the name of Jesus, the Savior who reigns in heaven, Amen.